You're listening to The Solution, a podcast by Growers Mineral. I'm your producer, Russell Bobel. In today's episode, Marguerite Fall, Jim Hallbison, and Zach Smith get into the topic of nutrient runoff and why farmers need to pay attention. This is the final installment of a three-part series. Go back and listen to part one and part two if you have not done so. There's also a video version of these episodes available on YouTube. Search Growers Mineral on YouTube to find our channel. Now, on to the conversation. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's launch into the third part of this section. Um, we're going to talk about nutrient loss. Um, Jim, you're definitely going to have a lot to say about this. And, and Zach, I, I know you want to... Um, you want to focus a lot on, um, the farm as it's losing nutrients, but I think you were going to talk a little bit about other parts too. So, um, why don't you start Zach with a basic introduction of the nutrient loss and and what the issue is here. And, um, then we'll have Jim add in input and stuff as we go. Sure. Uh, I'll start with a, just a basic introduction and reasoning as to why we want to focus on this. So, uh, like we said before, Non-point source pollution is largely to blame for the, the current algae problems, the current nutrient pollution problems. Um, and, and a large part of that is agriculture. And there's certainly other other contributors like golf courses and lawn care in cities. I'm not going to deny that they contribute, but given the size of agricultural land and the quantities of fertilizer applied to it, with the lack of efficiency, we know that it's being lost. So this is certainly a big topic. Um, I want to focus on what actually happens in the field when fertilizer is applied and then lost. I think this is an important part of the discussion. First of all, given our uh, one of our target audiences, which of course are farmers, um, but it also helps people to understand that these nutrients that are entering the lake actually come from somewhere. They're not ubiquitous. Um, they're, they're controllable. They come from somewhere and there are a lot of benefits to addressing that problem. Um, so that's the basic reasoning for why we want to do this. Uh, Jim, I think you would have a lot more to say on what actually happens when somebody applies a dry or a liquid fertilizer that gets lost. Uh, if we want to go into that now, we can Marguerite, unless you have something else you want to talk about first. Yeah, let's, let's absolutely go into that. What do you, what do you have to say about that, Jim? Well, the the philosophy of fertilization is that when you apply the nutrient to the soil, um, whether it is liquid or dry, that it will be absorbed by the plant in a liquid form. So if you're applying dry, it's got to rain first before you're going to have any utilization. And if you have liquid, it'll take less rain uh, to have utilization. But the efficiency is where we feel there is... A serious problem because the utilization occurs when the plant is actually growing and how much fertilizer is applied to plants when the plant is actually growing. Uh, in corn production, there's a little bit of nitrogen that is applied while the plant is growing from side dressing, uh, but that is a very minimal amount of actually applied fertilization. When you get into vegetables, uh, everything is applied up front and then uh, when the crop starts growing, then there will be utilization. Well, that time span in there that uh, 
lag of time of utilization from application is very serious problem because much of this has to be absorbed as water or through water, so it must be water soluble. And as soon as it's water soluble, if you have any excess water that leaves the system, it's naturally going to take nutrients with it. So this is a part of the loss of fertilization is early in the game that it's applied, hoping that the crop will get some utilization of it. But since it's already water soluble, when you get these excess water events, that's when you start to lose it. And see the problem with the algae bloom in Lake Erie comes in years when we have heavy spring uh, rainfall. For example, this year the algae bloom is less than it has been the last several years because why? We had a very uh, dry spring which didn't allow much loss. Uh, we go back to 2016 when the bloom was really one of the smallest blooms early in the season because we had a very dry spring there. But those years in between when we had heavier rainfall, particularly like in 19 when it was very heavy, there's loss. And see, this is what you're dealing with with fertilization. Farmers have to get that on uh, ahead of time. If you go back to these methodologies we talked about before, a lot of fertilizer was applied with the planter when the crop was being planted. As farmers have gotten to larger size, they have gotten away from that. They bulk spread their fertilizer early in the season so that they just can continually plant. And see, the grower's methodology is talking about applying that nutrient right when you're putting the seed in the ground. And so that the utilization will occur much more quickly because the plant is actually growing when you're applying the fertilizer. And then <clears throat> the stabilization of fertilizer is an issue that a lot of fertilizer companies do not discuss. And see, the purity of product plays into that quite significantly also. When you talk about things like phosphorus or potassium, particularly phosphorus, we're trying to stabilize that nutrient in the biological force that's in the soil. And see, we think that takes a purity of product and a balance of product in order for those microbes to consume it so that it doesn't get away from you. The microbes themselves, as they secrete sugar out of their system, they stick themselves to the soil particles, and a heavy rainfall doesn't wash them away. And so that stabilization with that high purity product and balanced product really holds that nutrient from getting away from the farmer. And then there are other things with the impure products, concentrations in the zones, particularly as no-till has become more popular with the idea of not tilling the soil so that you get a lot of erosional runoff. But what has happened is you've created zones of accumulation, particularly of phosphorus, that are very, very high in concentration. And then when the water gets into that zone of concentration, it actually solubilizes the phosphorus and it'll move out through the tile system. When I was in college in the early 70s, they told us phosphorus would never leave the land other than through erosional loss. And in the late 80s and early 90s, in the state of Maryland, they proved that to be incorrect, that we actually have high enough concentrated areas of phosphorus that it can move in clear water very easily. And this has changed the whole dynamics of what's happening in agriculture. And that science has now been accepted 
the um, environmental uh, groups have found that to be absolutely correct. And so what we're saying, it's all going back to the concentration of fertility that you're using. How much ahead in time are you putting it on? And what is the distance away from that plant that you're putting it on? And then we'd like to add the quality. If you have a high quality ingredient in there that the biological will consume, it also will stabilize uh, those nutrients so that they don't get away from you. Now, when you talk about something like nitrogen, uh, you get loss through leaching of nitrate, but you also get loss anaerobically when you have heavy rainfall. Uh, the first Journal of Environmental Quality in 1972 contended that farmers lost at least 50% of applied nitrogen, no matter what, that that was the accepted value. And see, at that point, there wasn't a concern in the water systems because we hadn't been applying nitrogen fertilizer at heavy rates at that time. But as over the years, we've increased that rate of nitrogen fertilizer, that loss has gotten much more significant than we're seeing that in these water systems. Gulf of Mexico, Lake Erie, Chesapeake Bay, uh, the water system in Iowa, where they, they sued the, the local conservation districts for excess of nitrate in the Skunk River because of the fertilizer nitrogen that was being applied by farmers. So we're saying to farmers, through the growers' mindset, you can change that application timing, make it much more utilized by the plant, and the amount of loss into the environment will shrink quite significantly. And see, that will allow you to keep that yield level very, very competitive, but your risk of losing off-site nutrition will go down quite significantly. That was so much information. I'm like, I'm like soaking it all up. Um, so a couple <laughs> things to, to clarify, just so I understand, because sure. I'm, you know, not a chemist. No, right. Um, so you said that, um, if you have a drier spring, so mm -hmm. less rain, you have less runoff, right. would I be incorrect in assuming that then I would have more nutrient retention and better yield? I didn't have enough water though. How does that work? Because... Possibly, but probably not, because like you said, what is really the most important thing? A bunch of fertilizer or more water. Right. So just go back to your original premise that you talked about. What is 96% of the plant? Carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So the water is much more critical to your productivity than that volume of fertilizer because it's a very small portion of that. Absolutely. So... You know, I, that, that seems like a no-brainer to me. It probably does to yeah. you too, Zach. Like, then then why would you do it? Yeah, no, <laughs> why would you add all like that to, fertilizer? Uh, Marguerite, I'd like to add to that uh, answer, Jim's answer to that question. Also, the reason, one of the reasons that that fertilizer would have been lost if there was enough rain is because it's not being used by the plant or by the microbes. Mm -hmm. So even in the, ab actually it's, it's even worse in the absence of rain, it's, it's going to be used even less. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not being lost from the field at that time, it's still not being used by the microbes or the plant. Okay. And then just to connect mm -hmm. a little bit more for my mind. So then that creates what you were referring to as the zones of accumulation. Right, that's so correct. they didn't run off. They just, but they're still not used like Zach said. So they accumulate. Right. 
and then happen. that eventually will erode and run off. Or it will leach through the system. See, everybody okay. felt yeah. that everything had to run off of the surface, and that's not true. They find in the tile drainage that there are high levels. Nitrogen, they knew, had done that, but they didn't think phosphorus did. But now they're finding a tremendous amount of phosphorus in these tile systems because of these zones of accumulation in there. Phosphorus is not that soluble in clear water until the concentration gets high enough. They never felt the concentration was high enough, but now they've learned that these zones of accumulation are high enough that the water can actually dissolve the phosphorus when it rains. It didn't run off the top. It went right through the tile system into the water system because okay. all that's going to drain into the lake eventually. So staying on that topic with phosphorus, um, I, I heard Zach give a pretty good explanation one time, so you might cut me off and, and do it yourself, Zach. But um, my understanding is that when I am spraying a fertilizer on or putting a fertilizer on, I want whatever's in that fertilizer, like phosphorus, to bind with the soil chemically so that it holds it to the soil. And if it's not doing that, so if I have a huge accumulation of it, Obviously, I had it so much of it that my other parts of my soil cannot bind to it. Am I understanding that correctly to hold it? You're, you're, yeah, you're correct chemically, but you make this very same mistake that farmers make. They have been told that everything is chemical in the soil, and we're saying, no, that's not correct. It's the biological life that makes the soil work correctly. You want that biological life to consume that phosphorus. Why? Because when it lives in a symbiotic relationship with the plant, it always can make that nutrient available to the plant because they live a very short lifespan, say 24 hours. So you put phosphorus in there, they eat it. Within 24 hours, the plant can get at it because the plant is going to eat that dead microbial tissue. And why is that? Because... They are feeding the plant to grow the sugar that they need to eat. We are all tied to the photosynthetic efficiency of plants. In other words, you can go out there and get a very nice suntan and be on the front of gentleman's quarterly, but you did not use any of that energy from the sun. You have to consume a green growing plant to get at that energy. And see, that relationship is the same for the microbes. First of all, they don't have any exposure to sun because they're in the soil, but they still need sugar to exist. The plants will give that to them. In return, the microbes will help feed the plant. So when you're feeding the soil, you are feeding both the chemical and the biological aspect, the biological aspect yes, being yes, the soil microbes. Yes, Correct. And that's right. And see, we're saying that's where the real key is at is, and see, that's why manure works so well because it always brought biological life back into the soil from the excrement of the animal. And see, that's how you perform yourself, your immune system. Well, really this whole COVID thing is related to your immune system functioning. And what is that? It's just a bunch of microbes in your intestines that secrete compounds that help protect you against the COVID invasion, the flu invasion, or, or whatever. Their immunology is the fastest growing part of medicine right now, and that's all focused on getting the correct biological life in that human immune system. Soil is identical. That makes so much more sense to me now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
This is all known knowledge to you, right, Zach? Pardon? This this is already known knowledge to you, right? We just did a tangent uh, to, for me. To a degree, yes, but I always enjoy hearing it again. So, so, so I know, um, one thing you wanted to, to give us to Zach was the whole picture of, um, of nutrient loss. So nutrient loss really starts in the field and kind of ends at the river. Did you get the, the full, um, layout of that at laid out as you wanted? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just wanted it to be very clear that, like I said before, these nutrients are not ubiquitous. They do come from somewhere. So Jim has explained marvelously, how it goes from purchase to application to lack of use to loss. And then once it's into the water system, it's eventually going to end up somewhere that it's going to get used by, uh, well, it'll either end up in the stream bed where it might sit for a while or it'll get used by a, a photosynthetic organism. So I just wanted that full picture so that, that nobody can walk away from this thinking that it's not connected. Right. And see, the other thing that farmers need to think about is the artificial nutrient has a cost value to it. In other words, it requires energy to mine and to manufacture. Now, what is that cost? And see, the farmer himself is raising an energy product. He's raising sugar that he's selling at the market, <clears throat> whether it's in a seed of corn or whether it's in a cantaloupe or whether it's in a soybean. That is accumulated energy. Now, what is he being paid for that energy? What does he have to expend in energy costs to get a certain amount of energy? And we're saying if you use the biological system as it has been given to us, use it to its maximum, the amount of input energy you have to spend on can be cut drastically. That helps your profit. Yeah. Plus, it also cuts back on the amount of nutrient that can be lost out into the environment from your system. It's a win-win. Right. So in theory, if we got people using 50% less fertilizer, there's less work going in to make it and, and less runoff. But Absolutely. what's the issue there? I mean, the issue is people are spending 50% less money. Right. That's right. great for the farmers, bad for Absolutely. business. That's right. Exactly. See, so what are they? <laughs> that's right. What are they going to hear? You know, they're going to hear what's good for business. See, and farmers right. have to figure out what's good for their business. So it's worth their business to spend millions of dollars marketing and and supporting universities in these studies Absolutely. to prove and and advertise that this you need more fertilizer that's you right. need more fertilizer because you'll right. get yeah. more money that's, that's, right. too that's, yeah. that's too bad that's too bad see and the farmer can overcome that quite simply just go to the field and test it up and see what happens yep yeah yeah and that's i think too bad. the these all these water quality issues, nutrient pollution issues, and the algae blooms are proof positive that the methodology that is being bought or bought and paid for in the universities of, of high input, high fertilizer use, it's proof positive that that's not true. Because if you needed that much fertilizer, it wouldn't be lost and we wouldn't have these problems. But we do have these problems. Therefore, it is being lost. Therefore, you don't need that much or you need it in a better manner. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just do our last little plug of, so what do you do to produce high quality food, but minimize the fertilizer? What's, what's the trick there? The trick is the two biggest enemies, the fertilization are time and distance. When do you need to get it on and how close can you get it to the plant? And when you do that, 
the efficiency of use will go up significantly so that as the farmer, he'll be able to cut back on his input costs. But the side benefit is his loss of that input will be significantly less so that his environment is improved quite significantly. Right now, that's not the environmental issue is not a problem for him until the, the rest of society said it is a problem. Then he's going to have to address that. Right. And so it's not enough of a problem for people talking about it. It has to be brought in judicially. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. When that happens, that's when farmers are going to have to address that. And I feel there are a lot of farmers that realize that this is a possibility and they want an answer. Is this possible? Can I do this? Can I cut this fertilizer back and be competitive? We say absolutely yes. We've been doing this for 65 years. Talk to your fellow farmer that's been doing it. Don't go over there and try to do everything he's doing. Come back to your farm and tinker with it. Mess around with it and see what you see. And if we're correct and it, it, you can do some of it on 10 acres, can you do it on 100? Can you do it on 500? See, then we'll help you with that. So just to kind of connect the last um, discussion we had about this related to algal blooms, right? So we we talked about the, the mid-90s. Zach mentioned that there was really a change in methodology and all of a sudden a, a stark change in algal blooms, right. Right? right? And since then, we've had these consistent algal blooms. So is it you know, possible that we're living, you know, right now during a potential farming revolution mm -hmm. where it's about to change the methodology again. So we went from, you know, doing all this tillage and, and rotating right, right, right. to using an excess of fertilizer. You know, what's what's the next step, really? And right, I, right. I think the farming community is really starting to look at that. And we're saying, mm -hmm. you know, the, the move to fertilizer wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. It just was too much. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think I, I agree. I think that this is something and the the judicial getting involved that is the forerunner in my opinion and and as we talked about before with this dicamba uh farmers a, a year ago they would have said that's never going to be stopped being used right now that's a very serious issue and if that comes to fertilizer they're going to have to look at a different methodology to match up to that my why is it that we're never innovative until there's a real problem it, you know, it's when you're old, like I am, change is, is it's a challenge. You got to get with the program. You got to start thinking, see, and we can just do the same old thing and not worry about it. It's a lot easier, see. And so uh, change is always a challenge, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Any, any final thoughts from either of you guys? Find no, job, I think Zach. that covers it for me. Yeah, fine job, Zach. Great. Yeah, great job, Zach. Thanks. Great you job, too, Jim. Jim. I really enjoyed this. Learned so much. I hope everyone else who's listening did too. And um, if you didn't catch this uh, last two parts of this uh, little series, check them out. The second episode's algal blooms, and the first episode is talking about eutrophication. So get that background. Make sure you have a full understanding. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe and share with a friend. If you'd like to learn more about the Growers Program, visit our website, www.growersmineral.com.